We have reached the end of the table. Not the end of the line, not the end of the rope. The end of the table. For six weeks, I've been telling you about this visual illustration in a series we're calling Table Talk. As you can see, the table has all sorts of different mismatched chairs sitting around it. That's because they each represent a stage in spiritual life and development. This first chair does not have spiritual life at all. It represents a person who is welcome to the table but does not know it. Or is invited but does not want to come. This is a person Jesus would describe as spiritually dead. They're separated from the life of God. They are loved by God, but they are not yet in his family. That's why Jesus told one of the most religious men of his day, a man named Nicodemus, you must be born again. And when people are born again, they are born always, inevitably, every single time as babies. There are no, no one is born as a teenager. No one is born strong. People are born alive, but in need of care, in need of protection, in need of someone else to feed them and to make sure that they are safe within the family. That's the infant stage of spiritual life. This is why Peter told his readers in his first letter that they must desire, like newborn babies, like infants, the milk of the Word of God. If they're cared for and fed properly, babies always become... Babies go into... Never mind the table, just think about your kids. Think about yourself. If you're, in, if you're old enough to be in here and you're understanding what I'm saying in English, you know what this next chair is. You went from being a baby to becoming a, a child. You're in a high chair. This chair is characterized by simply not knowing. The next chair, the child, he knows a great number of things, but a child inevitably relates all the things he knows back to himself. This stage is characterized by selfishness. All of these chairs represent joy in a family. A family rejoices when a baby is born. A family rejoices also to watch a child begin to grow up. And children, if they are continually taught, if they are cared for, if they, if they are encouraged to turn the focus of their life outward, They become what we talked about last week. They become young adults. This is a person who has begun to understand not only that they're in the family, but there are other people in the family with them. They have begun to understand their gifts and their calling. They are understanding their purpose that God has for them. More than anything else, they are now beginning for the first time in their lives to contribute. These first two stages are necessarily and joyfully characterized by consumption, being cared for, having things given to them. Now all of that work and all of that enjoyment is beginning to turn outward to others. But the young adult who is now spiritually strong, who now understands the father, understands his will and understands his purpose, can be easily discouraged as he tries to serve the rest of the table. If you've ever had a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old who's been very discouraged and disgusted by his four-year-old brother, you understand what I'm talking about. Finally, we come to the parent stage. 
And here's the temptation in this message. The temptation in this message is that too few of you will think that you will ever arrive here. You will relegate in your mind this chair to the lives of the apostles and super Christians and people who by calling or gifting or the small-mindedness of congregations come up on church platforms like I do and open up the Bible and teach it. Sometimes churches miss their mark and invite the wrong people to do this. You've wondered about me. Don't pretend like you haven't. (laughs) Here's what I need you to know about that temptation. Jesus wants every single one of his disciples, everyone who's in his family, to follow him to that chair. Every one of you. It is not the domain of the spiritually elite. It is not the calling of the select few. There is something desperately wrong in the way the contemporary American church is doing discipleship. In other words, is calling people to follow Jesus because the truth is all too few people actually ever arrive here. Remember what I told you about my friend Sal Saberna? He surveyed his very large church and discovered that 70% of his long-established, healthy, strong, national model in some ways church was characterized by 70% children. What would a family look like if 70% of the members are kids? It would be a happy family. It would be a very messy family. The grown-ups in that family would be tired, right? Let's put this in real terms. Let's say there's a family of 10, okay? And seven of those 10 are under the age of 10. You getting the picture now? How are those folks down there? How, are, how, is, the, how is the one young adult? He's tired, All too often, people don't take Jesus seriously when he told us to obey him in all things, and we think we can't. We immediately check out and we self-select our level of comfort, and we choose consciously or unconsciously because we have not been taught any better and not been challenged to anything higher. We choose to stay in this chair right here. That's what kids do. They choose their level of obedience. Have you noticed this about children? Children are characteristically say when challenged to do hard things, they say, I don't feel like it. Or I don't think I can. Or I was scared and I didn't know what to do. Parents, at least good parents, don't have the privilege of saying, I don't feel like it today. Think about your day tomorrow. How many of you feel like going to your job? You're kind of hoping I'll hurry through it and Sunday will be over so you can get right back to it tomorrow. Are you looking forward to that? Are you brimming with enthusiasm? No, but almost all of you will get up and you will go because you're, you're responsible. You're dependable. In the spiritual life of the believer, we dare not settle for allowing Christians to fall short of a full obedience to Jesus and remaining anywhere short of the parent here. I've thought a lot about this and sought some wisdom from people who know more about this than I do. 
This is an arbitrary figure based on experience, based on conversations. But it's hard for me to imagine that anyone should spend more than a year or two in these first two chairs. When I read the New Testament, what I see instead are people who are genuinely converted and in God's family, very often doing extraordinary things that we equate to super-Christianity. And this is done actually in the very first stages of their Christian life. Why? Because they really were born again. They really were converted. They did not adopt a religion. They did not make a false profession of faith in Jesus. They got serious about having a personal relationship with him that resulted in obedience, and they very quickly moved into this stage. So what I'd like to do with you today by ending our table talk, or at least the talk about the cheers, I'd like to talk to you about parents. And for those of you who are already in God's family and you know it, my heartfelt desire and prayer for you is that you would pray along with this sermon and say, Jesus, help me follow you all the way to the head of the table. I want to be a spiritual parent to others. If you'll look at your outline, please. What effect do parents have on the family table? They bring joy to the table. Every chair brings joy to the family, but the parent brings joy because they help others come into the family and grow up. That's what parents do. They help new people come into the family and they stay with them so that they will grow up. What is the key difference between the young adult and the parent? It is this. Parents reproduce. What is true in the physical world is true in the spiritual world as well. You may have the capacity to reproduce, but you don't actually become a parent until it happens. If you've met my boys, I have one that looks exactly like me. Pray for him, will you? I mean, poor kid. So I always tell him it could be worse. He could be a girl. That would really be tough. But he will never, ever wonder or deny his parentage. We look exactly, well, I wish. I wish I looked like he does, okay? He's me in a time machine if, he, if I cared much more about nutrition and weight training. That's my older son. <laughs> Turning into what kids today call a beast, okay? But he's mine. And I see, his, I see my mannerisms. I see the things that are good about me and a few of the things that are bad about me in him. And a lot of these things I've never consciously taught him. I've never sat him down and said, son, when you get frustrated, run your right hand through your hair. Put your head down and stare at the table and sigh heavily and run that hand through there about 12 times until it feels like hair is going to come out by the roots. He does it. Why does he do it? Because I do it. Why do I do it? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's because my father does it. There's reproduction. There's a legacy. There's a continuity. It's exactly what Jesus wanted. Listen to Paul talk to some of his spiritual children. He is talking now to the Corinthian church to whom he brought the gospel. People saved out of the most wicked paganism, the worst kind of idolatry and sexual immorality that perhaps the world has ever known. A city characterized by things like religious prostitution where drunkenness, and sex outside of marriage, perhaps with a religious prostitute, was considered part of worship to a false god. And they 
heard the gospel, they came to faith in Christ, but they remain immature. They remain babies and children. And they've done things like pick their favorite preacher and become divisive about it. The church is torn by the worst kinds of immorality. And rather than correct it or even mourning it, they are celebrating it as if to say, isn't it great that we are free in Jesus to do all these things? And now Paul is writing them and calling them on their immaturity, which gets flat out hateful. And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 4. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. Listen. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to, what's it say? Imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful son in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Do you hear reproduction there? What he's saying is, I'm your dad. You can have all kinds of tutors who can watch over you and teach you things about Jesus. You can have a countless number of helpers and instructors in following Jesus, but you'll only have one father. I brought you the gospel. And please hear me saying that over and over again. Our church's mission is discipleship. Our message is the gospel. And the method by which we will do all this is by putting people in relational small groups where they can help each other grow up in Christ. Paul is away from there. And I want you to see just how fatherly this gets. I didn't print it out. But if you have your Bible open, look over, look a little further down in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. See, if this reminds of you, it reminds you of maybe some fatherly talks you've given or that you've received. Verse 18. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. In other words, some people are talking harshly and arrogantly about me as if they would never see me again. Some of the people I led to Christ have turned their back on me. Verse 19. But I will come to see you soon if the Lord wills and I find and I find and I will find out Not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Listen to how fatherly and stern this gets. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Oh boy. That's my dad giving me the things are going to change or things are going to change talk. There was a decisive moment in our relationship when I was 18 where I, my dad told me in all seriousness, if I thought I was man enough to speak to him that way, I could try it. And we both knew what he meant. And I gasped, no, sir, that won't be necessary. You're sure? Yes, sir. We clear? Yes, sir. And that's the last time we ever had that kind of defiance on my part. That's what Paul's saying here. You are straying from Christ, you're immature, you're selfish, you're divided. Some of you are behaving terribly, you're embarrassing Jesus. His name is getting dragged through the mud. And some of you are saying that I don't care or have the capacity to come back and correct you. I'm coming just as soon as the Lord permits. And do you want me to come gently or do you want me to come with discipline? That's the tough side of parenting. Because parents 
have children, and then they take the responsibility of making sure that that child in the family of God makes it through all of these dangerous seasons. Because what parents always hope and dream of is to see their kids have kids. I'm not there yet, but I see a joy and a smile and a satisfaction on the faces of parents when they're holding their grandchildren that is like nothing else. Parents reproduce. I want you to see how Jesus did this. Jesus is the greatest disciple maker of all. And Jesus reproduced himself. He made his life and his mission continue after his very short time on earth because Jesus gave his disciples his mission. When Jesus first called his disciples to follow him, this was their essential call. This was the invitation. This was the challenge. He said to them, Matthew 4.19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's as good a definition in just a few words, a, few, a definition of following Jesus as we can find in the New Testament. Check this out. Someone who is a disciple, someone who is a true believer in Jesus, knows and follows him. Do you see that in the first two words? They know personally who he is, they hear his voice, and he follows him. He'll change the word picture later in the Gospel of John, and he will say, my sheep know my voice. When I speak to them, their ears perk up, their heart is drawn, and they follow me. So a disciple knows and follows Jesus, and then he says, I will make you. So is this a flat org chart? Are Jesus and the disciples on the same level? Do you know what I mean by a flat org chart? You're looking at me. Honestly, it's like an oil painting out here sometimes. Everybody okay? (laughs) Are Jesus and the disciples peers? They're going to be friends, but are they the same thing? Do they have the same status? No. Jesus said, I will make you. So a disciple of Jesus knows and follows Jesus, and a disciple of Jesus is always constantly being changed by Jesus. Jesus is making them into something different. If you've really been following Jesus and you think back across your life, you maybe can barely remember the person who sat in this chair. And when you think of your early days in Jesus, you marvel at how much more you know him and love him and trust him from the time you were in your spiritual high chair. If you don't see much difference... Across your life, that tells me that you're probably seated right here. If it has largely consisted of going to church and changing your music a little bit, having a few more Christian songs because they help you feel better, that's the child stage. And that's okay. Jesus loves you in every chair across the table, but he wants you moving forward to the parent chair. So let's review. A disciple is someone who knows and follows Jesus and who is constantly being changed by Jesus. And here's the key part. Here's where it gets reproductive. What did Jesus tell these fishermen he would make them into? Fishers of men. He took their profession and he changed it. He put it in the simplest language that they could understand. And he said, you're not going to be pursuing fish anymore. You're going to be pursuing people. So a disciple of Jesus is someone who knows and follows Jesus, 
who is constantly being changed by Jesus, and check this out, who joins Jesus on his mission. Doesn't have their own agenda, isn't pursuing their own thing, isn't building their own kingdom. Jesus is pursuing people. Jesus is fishing for men. Jesus is calling and saving sheep. So he's going to turn his disciples into imitators of him. He's going to have them do what he came to do. What will Jesus say to the same men three years later? Check it out. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Different language, same mission. Same Savior. Why is Jesus here? Because he is calling people out of spiritual death into God's family to maturity. And from the moment he calls his disciples, he gives every single one of us his mission. And the tragedy comes when someone in the family, for bad teaching or lack of clarity, or the devil's victory over both their teachers and their learning, says, I'm fine in these chairs right here. Making disciples, that's that's super Christian stuff. These are ordinary people who Jesus has welcomed into a personal relationship with him. He started essentially a small group of disciples. And for three years, he poured himself into them so that when he was gone... His life, his mission, his message would continue. Did it work? Has it? How do you know? Exactly. We're here. Those words were given over 2,000 years ago to people in a Semitic culture on the other side of the world who were born largely into communities of no importance in their day. It takes you about 13 hours to fly there from here. And there were no airplanes then. How in the world did a small group of divisive people, some of whom had reason to hate each other the first day they met one another, because you've got basically a traitorous tax collector and a freedom fighter in the same small group. I can tell you this, if the church office were putting the small group together, the pastors would say, we got to keep these two guys apart. They hate each other. This guy here is trying to sell his country out. This guy over here is actively trying to kill people like him. We can't have them in the same small group. We'll put one of them in Laguna Niguel and the other in Garden Grove. Maybe that'll be enough. That'll be a safe distance between them. Why would Jesus do such a thing? Because he's the master disciple maker. And just before dying, he says to the same group that it still includes these two men who started so far apart. And he says radical things like this. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. They have any reason whatsoever to love each other? No, except one, Jesus. And their faithful obedience to him as they knew and followed him, as he changed them into what he wanted them to be, and they adopted his mission. Let's move a little quicker. What then is this spiritual stage like? Here are the difference, here are the contours of the difference between the young adult and the parent. 
The single greatest difference is that the parent is now reproducing. The young adult is helping. He is serving. He is no longer selfish. He is looking at the rest of the family. But the parent has stepped it up a notch. He has done all that, and now he is also reproducing. He is doing what Paul said to Timothy. He is saying to others, I am your father in Christ. I want you to imitate me. I want you to observe my ways and remember my ways in Christ and do what I ask. A parent is, first of all, intentional. Parents have to be intentional. You ever notice how little, little kids wonder where the food comes from? What is a child's main question about food? When's it being served, right? What are we having and when is it hitting the table? Well, honey, I'm sorry. I I haven't had time to go to the store. What? My boys are growing out of this, but early days, you told them, you know, you might have to wait 10 minutes to eat. I mean, cue the dramatic Italian aria. Cue the Greek tragedy kind of stuff. Like, this is, this is devastating. Buddy, it's cooking. You smell that? Yeah, that's food. Maybe 10 minutes. It's not done yet. (laughs) Parents are intentional. Even busy parents say to one another, what are we going to feed the kids? Right? Hey, have you thought about lunch? No, I'm sorry. I was late. Okay, here's what you do. You pick him up from volleyball and take him through the drive-thru. I'm going to Sam's right now because we are completely out of food. And by the time you get back, I'll have something going for the rest of them. You ever had these kinds of conversations? Parents are intentional. They think beyond themselves. Parents plan. Parents are also self-feeding. They do not sit at the table and wait. That is the role of children. Parents know because of their close relationship with Jesus, they know how to observe him. They know how to do what Jesus called abiding in him. Look at John 15, 5. In fact, read it with me, please. Jesus said to his disciples shortly before he went to the cross, here's final instructions, if you will, to be ready for the mission he had given them. Read with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, I am the source of life. The spiritual fruit, the fruit that remains, the things that are eternally useful to other people, those will come from me. And Jesus gave a condition to bearing fruit. It's contained in a single word. Do you see it? What are they to do? They are to abide. They are to make themselves at home with him. They are to spend time with him. They are to be so close to him that they trust him and they know him. And they speak to him in prayer. And they hear from him in his word. And the Holy Spirit who gave them the new birth and brought them into God's family, he opens up the word to them and applies it to their hearts. In other words, parents know how to hear from Jesus so that they will have something to give to the rest of the family. 
They are self-feeding. John 15, 5, as deep and significant as a verse is, makes sense to parents. Even if you don't understand the depth of that word picture and all the theological implications of what it would look like for one person to abide in another and stay close to a Savior who is real but not physically present, that verse makes sense to spiritual parents. If it still seems a little outside of your grasp, ask Jesus to move you into the next chair by saying, Lord, teach me this and make it my personal, actual experience that I spend time with you, that I rest in you, that I am close to you so that your life will flow through me and produce fruit in my life that cannot be explained by anything except the fact that I'm connected to you. Spiritual parents are self-feeding. Because of that, spiritual parents are mission-minded. They are keenly aware of what Jesus wants, and they stay on task. The constant battle is between being mission-minded and me-minded. We sang pretty easily, I surrender all. We even had some harmony. Did you hear it? Okay, and it got a little groovy, and people were swaying. It's good. Hard to live out. What's the difference between this end of the table and that end of the table? Surrender. This person right here, they've surrendered nothing to Jesus. They're all about themselves. They don't even personally know him. You speak to them of Jesus as Lord, and that sounds cultish and weird. You resist that. You don't want a Lord. You want to be your own boss. You want to be self-determined. But then Jesus shows up and you're born again and you're in God's family and you spend all of this time fighting him for control. And on a spiritual level, with all the descriptions and all the word pictures I've tried to paint for you of these biblical truths, really what it boils down to is surrender. That's why also it's easy to leave this chair and jam yourself back into this one. You pound the table and say, nope, 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 now it's about me. I've talked to grown men with families who walked away from the wives of their youth 25, 30 years, saying, I need to find myself. I've spent all my life making it about others. Now I'm going to, it's time for some me time. What is that? Childish talk. What about your children? This is going to wreck them. Well, I'll just have to trust the Lord to take care of them. I'm just telling, I'm repeating to you verbatim conversations I've had countless times in two different countries. What is that? That is the opposite of surrender. That's gathering up your life and saying, I don't like it the way it is. I'm not going to listen to Jesus. I don't care about his mission. It's about me right now. And the real point of this series, with all of these descriptions, forget all about that. If you want to hear a single word that encapsulates spiritual growth, it is surrender. That's what makes Paul leapfrog, apparently, all of these stages and immediately become this towering giant. His first words he spoke to Jesus, he called him Lord. You remember? Who are you? Lord, Paul's still blind and still in the dirt, but he's apparently settled it already. 
whoever this is, I'm surrendering to him. You remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is a hard thing. It is a difficult thing for you to kick against. Do you remember this? The goads. Some people have said that that represents Paul's troubled conscience. That he's participated in the stoning death of Stephen and he's really troubled about it. I don't think that's true. Because later, as he reflects back on his life, Paul says that when he was a Pharisee, he served Jesus with a clear conscience. In other words, he thought he was right. He thought he was helping persecute, imprison, and murder Christians because he was serving God. He was doing what he thought he should do, but he met Jesus. And what Jesus meant by, it's a hard thing for you to kick against the goads, what he's saying to Paul is, Paul, you won't win this. Because a goad was a sharp stick that an ox driver used to get oxen going when they didn't want to move forward. And if that ox kicked back against a sharp stick, what's going to happen? Powerful animal kicks a sharp stick. It's going to be a very, very painful wound because of the animal's stubbornness. What Paul said to, what Jesus said to Paul is, Paul, you can't win. I'm real. I'm back from the dead. You're not persecuting believers in a false myth. You're not persecuting people who believe a lie. I'm real and I'm powerful and I am the boss. And you can't win this. So Paul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that was it. He laid his whole life in front of Jesus. And very quickly, if you follow his biography, in a very short time started becoming a spiritual parent to people. That makes the difference. Who are the super Christians? The super Christians are those who surrender. What is hard for you and me? To surrender. I'm so much about me. I love me some me. And so do you love you some you. Spiritual parents aren't thinking about themselves anymore. They have needs. They have struggles. I'll share more with you about I'll share more about that with you next week. I want to add a week next week to take your questions at the end of the sermon. Because I know this is starting to take form in some of your minds and you're excited and you can kind of sense what's happening. You see changes in the people around you who are already in relational small groups. One of you said to me in email this week, we've been praying and dreaming about being in a church like this our whole lives. Not this church right now. The church where everybody is in close enough relationship to each other that everyone finds their chair at the table and tries to move forward. Parents, finally, and I'll stop here for this week, they are dependable. That's what characterizes good parenting, is the sheer dependability of it. Because I had good parents, my life was very, very stable. People who don't have good parents, their life is chaotic and uncertain. 
I had a tradesman come to the house last week. Won't tell you any more than that, but he was 59 years old. And I suddenly found myself in a conversation where a man I'd met only 30 minutes earlier was crying because of how mean his father was when he was growing up. There's a fathering wound there. Why? Because there wasn't dependability. He didn't know if he was going to get a meal or a beating. Good spiritual parents are dependable. They stick with it. Look, listen to Paul talk to the Philippians now. And I want you to hear how similar this is to what he said to the Corinthians. It's a different, warmer tone because the Philippians are doing well. They're walking well. Paul says, therefore, all who are mature should think this way. What are you talking about, Paul? I'm talking about surrendering everything to Jesus. That's what that chapter is about. Paul says, I consider the things that were a treasure to me before I met Christ, I consider them trash. I did it then, I'm doing it now. Everything I had before Jesus, it's rubbish to me, garbage. I don't think about it anymore. I press forward for Christ. And he says, therefore, who, all who are mature should think this way. In, ever, in other words, everyone who's spiritual, spiritually mature should be surrendering. They should be turning their back on their former way of life, their selfishness, their stinginess, their easily woundedness, their self-righteousness, all the things that are not of Christ, they should be turning their back on them and pursuing Jesus. Everyone who's mature should think this way. Listen. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. I love the freedom of that verse. Now that I've given you this table analogy, do you hear your, both your responsibility and your freedom in that verse? Hey, whatever you understand you have in Jesus, stick with it. Don't go back. People who are mature think differently than the rest of the family, but wherever you are, Stay there. Live up to whatever truth we have attained. Read 17 with me. Paul said, Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Join in what? What's it, what are they supposed to be doing? Imitating. Why do, why do dads buy their boys little toy tools? Imitation. Why do little boys pick up razors, have their father snatch them out of their hands because they're not ready for that yet? But when I was a kid, my dad took the razor blade out of the razor and I pretended to shave next to him. Why is that? Because I loved him and I was imitating him. If you ever hear my dad preach, you'll hear a lot of me in him. Because I heard more sermons from my father than from anybody else. There's so much of me that comes from him. It's reproduction. It is conscious imitation, but it's not the, it's not the domain of super-Christians. Look at verse 17 at the end. Paul says, observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Observe anybody. Pay attention to anybody where you see the life of Christ. Who are those Christians? They're anonymous. They're not known to us now. Paul bottom lines it here with this. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Spiritual parents are able to say to people, 
Follow me because I'm following Jesus. And that is your potential. The parts where you would say to someone, don't do this. That's where you're still in another chair. That's exactly where you need to grow. What's the point of this sermon? To call those of you who are already spiritual parents to step forward and lead. To not continue to think that you need more refinement, you need further training. I'll talk to you next week about what you need as a parent. But right now, particularly in this first service, there are some of you who are capable of leading right now. You can say to other people, not as a perfect example, but as a faithful example, listen, kid, I'm following Jesus. Come with me. Imitate me because I am imitating Christ. And a parent will be able to say, a good parent, when they blow it, when they come up short, when they fail their kids and fail themselves and they're a little bummed out about it, a good parent will say, son, I'm sorry. I misled you on that one. Please forgive me. That wasn't what Jesus wanted. That's not how Jesus acts. Jesus acts this way. Now I'm following Jesus again. I'm imitating Jesus. Come with me. You can follow me because I'm following Jesus. You can do this. You don't have to do it for the whole church. That's relationally impossible. You can do it for a few. Close with something really personal from the small group I've been in for two months. Because I've been in a small group trying to work some of these things out in my own life and the life of some of those who will be leading when we launch our first wave of little small relational small groups in the beginning of May. Here's what I see Jesus doing in our church already. People who are good, respectable Christians are starting to take their mask off. And woundedness and hurt and fear and immaturity and all those things that characterize growing up in God's family because we are not yet perfect, none of us are fully mature, those are starting to be put out on the family table. And someone in my small group asked last week, are you ready for what's coming? Are you prepared to embrace all that? Structurally, we're not. If every one of you were really honest with Jesus and with somebody else in this church about where you're really doing, I don't think we have the manpower available this morning to say, go talk to them. They're a great example for you. What do I mean by that? Just to give a simple example, a friend of mine in the early days of the internet at a large church said, if I freed my calendar up, and this was in 1998, he said, if I allowed it to happen, I bet I could spend 40 hours a week counseling men who are addicted to pornography on the internet. That's 98. You think it's gotten better? Why am I telling you this? Because some of you are spiritual parents and you're following Jesus so well that I've told you countless times, I admire you, I respect you, I'm watching you, I'm learning from you. Those of you who already have that long experience with Jesus and are following him well, we need you. Because if the family gets real and honest and stops pretending... 
If our church is anything like Pastor Sal's and there's about 70% of us sitting in a child's chair, when we encourage the kids to get real, we're going to need more parents. Because I won't physically, humanly have the time to deal with it all. Here's the good news. That's never what Jesus intended. Paul said to the Philippian church in the first century, brand new church, didn't know Jesus for very long at all. Look at those who are imitating Christ well. Do what they do. That's what this is all about. Trusting the Holy Spirit to put this together because I don't have the smarts to be that good of an architect. To invite you into personal, safe, healthy, relational discipleship groups where you can sit down at a table and start together paying attention to Jesus to follow him in the next step. The struggle at every stage will be surrender. But we need parents. There are people in this congregation who are 30, 40, 50 years old who think and are esteemed as parents who are crying out on the inside for someone they can be real with. And they don't step up because they know how big the gaps are. For those who really are parents, even if there's only 20 people who are seated in that chair, if we engage all 20, guess what? In a short time, we're going to have 20 more. Because they're going to call people forward. And then there's going to be a snowball effect. And more and more people are going to be coming out of the dead chair into God's family. And it's going to be fantastic. And it's going to be so much more than going to church and trying to get through the week. Wouldn't you like to stand one day before Jesus and say, Lord, we're all your disciples, but these are the people I brought with me. Paul said, follow me because I'm following Christ. What that means is when you're in the parent chair, you should be able to look behind you and say, these are the people I'm bringing to the real master. I'm an under-shepherd. I'm an under-disciple maker. I'm a disciple maker because I was taught by the master disciple maker. And I'm not him, but I am following him. And Lord, here's the people I brought with me. How sad that millions of Christians will show up in heaven and only thing they have to point to is church attendance. I went faithfully to church for 45 years. Praise God, that's good. Did it result in disciple making? Yeah. I thought that was the pastor's job. No, Jesus told disciples, you make disciples. So parents, please join us. With parents, there is no false humility. You know what you can give. Join us. Let's pray. Father, This sermon took a turn even for me, and I trust, God, that it was directed by you. I've already talked about it, Lord, so I can't ask you to correct what's already done, but I can ask you, Lord, to cover it with grace and to make the intention of this message resonate deep in the hearts of those who listen. Lord, for those who are spiritually dead and not in your family, call them to eternal life right now, I beg you. For those who are babies and kids, help them to see themselves as they are and be encouraged because you love them and we love them too and we want to help them grow. For young adults, help them have a deeper, bigger hunger to be parents to at least a few other people. 
and to follow you so faithfully that they could tell those behind them, come with me, I'm going with Jesus. And God, for the spiritual parents that we have wrongly invited to take a seat when they should be following you and leading others to you, stir in their hearts right now and give, Lord, especially second half of life Christians, fresh vision and fresh passion for the impact they can have on the young people who are sitting here listening to this and thinking, yes, it's true, send somebody to me. God, there are young mothers in this congregation who are so afraid of their parenting responsibilities. They worry about their marriage. They worry about their jobs. They worry about providing. And you've taught others, Lord, of all ages, how faithful and strong you are in all those storms. I don't know what else to say, Lord, but bring up, Lord, cause the parents in this congregation to rise and to draw the children to them. And I pray that very, very soon, Lord, we would have genuine, wholehearted disciples all over this church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.